0: I think you are. You seem to be in a good mood. You seem to be, some of you seem to be in a good mood. I'll focus on you all, and uh, the rest can just be grumpy in their own little spot, whatever that may be. Uh, I'm glad that you're here. I've had a good day. I've got to run around with Booger all day. Everybody should get to run around with Booger all day. If I've got a friend in the world, his name's Booger, so if anybody has anything bad to say about Booger, don't say it to me because I'll tell him, then you'll have to deal with him. <laughs> I'll tell you, it's been a good day, it really has. I'm glad that you're here, and I want to share something with you um, that I don't share everywhere, but it's been on my heart tonight, and so I want us to look at Exodus chapter 13 just want to share two verses of Scripture with you, but if you have your Bible, keep it handy because in a little bit, I want to refer you to another passage of Scripture that I believe if you haven't already needed in your life, uh, before too long, you will. Uh, we've mentioned a number of times that life isn't easy, and it isn't always even fun. And I think there are times that we need to be encouraged. I don't know if you've ever been to the place where you've felt discouraged, I don't know if you've ever been in a place where you've been so frustrated that you just wanted to quit. Anybody been there? Uh, Well, about two years ago, it was the end of August or mid-August, somewhere around there, and I was preaching a camp meeting uh, with a man named David Gallimore. You probably know David around here. Um, It was a 10-day camp. It was a camp that you, you know all about these, Mickey, that still had an outdoor tabernacle. Um, three services a day, 100-and-something degrees, preaching to people in a heat coma. Uh, I'll I just bless you. I mean, people are shouting and running the aisles when they're about to pass out from the heat. Uh, but um, staying in a little cabin that was less than uh, luxury, and I was laying there. I'll just say it how it is. I was laying there feeling sorry for myself. You would think a 44-year-old man wouldn't feel sorry for himself. Any of y'all ever felt sorry for yourself? I started to think about what else I was qualified to do. You know, I've got a degree in religion. It's not really valuable in the world. And uh, I'm not real capable. I'm not a real smart guy. And so I was trying to figure out what it was that I could do besides what I was doing because... I was feeling bad that this was my life. And um, while I was laying there, the Lord began to straighten me out. Aren't you thankful? You you know, because honestly, I don't have anything to complain about. God has been better to me than I could ever possibly deserve. But sometimes I feel sorry for myself. And that was one of those times. And he began to remind me of what I'm going to share with you tonight. So if you've come here discouraged, discouraged, I pray that by the time you leave, by his spirit, you'll be encouraged. If you've come here seemingly losing hope, my prayer is that your hope will be renewed before you walk out of those doors in the back of the sanctuary. And I know that it can happen because we're in his presence and things happen when we're in his presence. Exodus chapter 13, we're just going to look at two verses, verses 17 and 18. <clears throat> when it came, then it came to pass, when Pharaoh had let the people go, that God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest perhaps the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the way of the wilderness of the Red Sea. And the children of Israel went up in orderly ranks out of the land of Egypt. Now, if you were here last evening, you remember that I told you that I started going to the Church of the Nazarene when I was 15 years old. Up to that point, I had been in my Papaw's church, and it's in Wofford, Kentucky. Do any of you all ever vacation in Wofford, Kentucky? I know there's a Wofford University in Kentucky, but I just want to let you know that's not the same Wofford that I'm talking about. Uh, because if you ever end up in Wofford, you turn down the wrong gravel road in the wrong holler. I'll just tell you that much. But up until I was 15, I thought the only kind of music there was in church was bluegrass and southern gospel. I still think that's the best. It's preference. It's preference. I'll just leave it at that. But, but you, you, you know, um, it wasn't until I started going to the Church of the Nazarene that I found out that I had missed out on an entire genre of music. You all were a little bit more sophisticated than they were down in Wofford, Missionary Baptist Church. Uh, You had a book of songs that I wasn't familiar with. And then I went to Olivet Nazarene University, sang in a choir called Orpheus for four years. And I found out that there were really some sophisticated songs that I knew nothing about. But when I started going to the Church of the Nazarene, I learned songs. Well, my pastor was a man named Morris Chalfant. I think I mentioned that last night. And he was an old fashioned holiness preacher. Um, He really did preach at gun barrel straight. Uh, When God made him, I I mean, he just broke the mold. He he was a wonderful, wonderful man. And we would sing things at First Church of the Nazarene in 1987 that I thought everybody all over the, the church was singing. Found out that wasn't the case. But we would sing the Why Worry song. Do you remember the Why Worry song? Why Worry When You Can Pray? Trust Jesus; He'll be your stay or make a way. I've heard it both ways. Don't be a doubting Thomas; just rest upon His promise. Why worry, 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 worry? That's good songwriting. <laughs> when you can pray, okay? You, do you know that one? Are are you Nazarene? Well, anyhow, we'd sing that. But then there are some hymns uh, that we would sing, and and it seemed like we sang some of them uh, quite a lot. In fact, there was one that I remember. That we would sing, it would seem, now I know it wasn't every service, but when you're a 15-year-old boy, it seemed like it was every service. The reason I say that is it bothered me. It really did. We'd sing these songs, and I'd listen to them, and I'm analytical. I get on my own nerves, so I know I get on yours. It it, it bothered me, and I'll explain to you why. And I know when I tell you what the song is, some of you are going to give me a funny look. I I know this response. I know what happens, but I'm just going to tell you the song that bothered me. It was written by a man named Ernest Blandley, and the title of the song is Where He Leads Me, I Will Follow. Now let me explain to you why it bothers me. For one thing, you do realize when you look in your hymnal there in the pew, hymn editors pick and choose which verses to add in that particular hymnal. Uh, they go through. So when you see, I believe, in our newest hymnal, not in some of our older ones, But in our newest, there are only four verses that we list to where he leads me. But there are actually somewhere around nine. I used to feel sorry for verse three because everybody but Kelly skips over verse three. (laughs) Thank you, Kelly, for not skipping verse three. But I don't understand why you put 16, but now I see how it was. I'm sure the hymn writer would love to see what you've done to his song. But anyhow, (laughs) anyhow, they pick and choose. Which verse, he's my friend, I can talk to him like that. Uh, You know, which verses to put in. So when you find this, there's around nine actual verses to this particular hymn that Blandley wrote. Now, I don't have a problem with the first verse, because I believe it's the kingdom requirement. We see that in Mark chapter 8. Blandly will say that I can hear my Savior calling, take thy cross and follow me. Where he leads me, I will follow I'll go with him, with him all the way. You'll remember that Jesus calls everyone along with his disciples to himself. And he says to them, if you really want to follow me, if you really want to get in on this thing, if you want to be my disciple, then you must, this is not optional, it wasn't for them, it's not for us. You must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. So that is the call of the kingdom. If you are going to be a kingdom Christian, you will bear your cross. You will embrace that place of death so that he can live his life through you. I don't have a problem with that first verse. But as you start to get into some of the other verses that, well, he says things like this. I'll go with him through the waters. And you do realize when Blandley is referring to waters, he's not talking about the calm waters or the still waters of the 23rd psalm he's not talking about peaceful streams he's talking about troubled waters red sea crossing type waters A- and what he is saying is that's the direction that that Jesus leads if that's where he wants me to go then i'll follow him all the way there because i'll go with him with him all the way he continues I'll go with him through the garden, and you understand that he's not talking about the beautiful flower gardens that are popping up around here in Rock Hill. He's not talking about Calloway Gardens or anything like that. When he's referring to going with him through the garden, he's talking about the Garden of Gethsemane, that you realize it was such a place of torment, a place of anguish that Jesus under the great stress of everything that was going on, he, his, the pores of his skin literally stretched to the point where he bled and his blood mingled with his sweat. He sweat drops of blood under such agony. And, and blandly is saying, if he wants me to go to that place of torment, that's where I'll go. Because I'll go with him all the way. See, that bothers me because I don't think that we should sing songs that we don't mean. We've become so arrogant that we want to stand in the presence of an all-knowing God. And because it's beautiful lyric and beautiful melody, we sing those songs, never even contemplating what it means that we're saying. And see, the thing is, is he looks beyond it all, through all the melody, all the beautiful flowery language down to the heart, and he knows. I'll go with him, blandly says, to dark Calvary. A place of execution. And the reason why I say what I say, some of you think I'm just being negative, but you know it's the truth. If you don't get your way one Sunday, you're mad for a month. You know I'm telling the truth. Get mad enough and you're going to go down to another church. You'll just leave there. I've met people who have left for dumb reasons, like someone said something negative about my banana pudding. Yeah, it would be funny. It would be funny if it weren't pathetic. That's a literal excuse. That's the kind of people pastors want to get in their church. Anyhow, the reason why it bothers me is because it reminded me as a 15-year-old boy and it just reinforces it as a 46-year-old man that following Jesus isn't easy you say it like this, following God's will for your life isn't necessarily an easy path. In fact, Jesus said, if they're treating me this way, and you do recall the treatment that he received, if they're treating me this way, you should expect the same. So I don't know where we ever get this idea that it's going to be rosy paths. I don't know how you've ever got this idea that when we follow Jesus, everything's going to go our way. Now, it turns out good. It's the best way. I'm not trying to, to lead you to, to any other conclusion. It is the best way, but it's not always easy. And there is proof of that all around us. You can look even in our hour. What was it? Easter Sunday morning in Sri Lanka, 350-something Christians lost their life for worshiping Jesus on the most holy day of Christianity. They were slain, martyred, because they showed up for a worship service. People around the world, because they, I, I read a post just days ago, Some African men, I can't remember which part of the continent they were in, but some African men refused to denounce the name of Jesus. And because of that, you saw their headless bodies laying in the soil. There is proof. Now, we might have it easy here. We whine a whole lot. But it's not easy to follow him. We have proof of it in the New Testament. I remember a story in Mark chapter 6 where the disciples do what Jesus told them to do. Do you remember after that great feeding of 5,000, at least 5,000 men? I say that because it was gender specific, so there's probably women and children as well, but at least 5,000. He told them to get into the boat and go before me unto Bethsaida. And the disciples do what Jesus told them to do, and because... They obey his command. They weren't running off haphazardly. They weren't doing it their own way. Because they ended up in that boat out on the sea, they faced a storm. The wind was against them so much to the point that they thought they would lose their life. This wasn't an act of disobedience. It was quite the opposite. Because they were obedient, they found themselves in that dangerous position. You can look in the Old Testament. Old Testament. And you see, can see where God speaks, to, even to the patriarchs, gives this promise, and they find it hard to believe. And sometimes, do you remember the story of Abram, Abraham, when, when he began to take matters into his own hands to try to make things work? How'd that turn out? Uh, I'm trying to get you to see, and I don't think this is new to you, following God's will is not always easy. And maybe there's no better illustration of this as when the children of Israel came out of Egypt land in the story of the Exodus. Now you remember the story of the Exodus. You're a Monday night crowd, so I'm going to assume quite a few things. You remember that Israel had um, been in Egypt land for some 430 years, and Now, finally, when freedom comes, it takes them two years to get to the precipice of God's promise. Two years, a trip that, depending on which scholar you read, I'm not a scholar, so I read them, depending on which one, it should have taken a few days, maybe a week, maybe a week and a half. Or for that crowd, maybe they had to make a lot of rest area stops, maybe two weeks. But it took them two years. And then when they get there, because of their unbelief, because of their disobedience, another 38 years they wander before they inherit the promise. Do you remember what happened? They set out that little scouting group. They, they go out there and they see the land and they see that it's everything and more that God said it would be. And then they bring evidence of it all over, and they say it's wonderful, it's more. You you can't imagine it. It's, It's good. But there is a problem. The inhabitants of that land, they're giants. And we are as grasshoppers in their sight. I think the real problem was they were grasshoppers in their own eyes. But because of that 38 more years, it took them before they ever, in fact, a whole generation did not inherit the promise. It's incredible. And you know, when when, when I just rehearsed that to you, you, you can't deny this. It was not God's plan that it should take them that long to get there. We know that it was the disobedience of His people that caused them to wander around for so long, that caused some of them never to receive or to see the promise. But you also cannot get around the fact, when you read the verses that we read together tonight, that God did delay the plan. Now, it wasn't by years. But we watch when God brings them out of Egypt land, on their way to the promise, that God does not take them. On the shortest route instead the journey that he picks seems to be the long road to the promise now you've got just to get a little bit of the backstory. i've already said it you know that israel has been in egypt land for 430 years and you also realize that when they wound up in egypt land they didn't end up there because um, they were dragged kicking and screaming. They, they weren't forced in chains and whips. No, they, they ended up, they were forced, but not by people. They were forced to go to Egypt because of a famine that had come over the land. You'll you remember the story of Joseph. That's where it all happens. And man, what an example right there. How, you don't have to look any further. If you want to talk about difficulty in following God's plan for your life, this poor old guy, I mean, Joseph, he's the dreamer. He's the one that God has given big dreams. The only problem is he didn't give him big sense, because he goes off and he begins to blab those dreams to his older brothers. And how many of y'all have older brothers? I'm the baby. I have an older brother. I, I mean, that doesn't go over so well. Besides, dad was already doting over Joseph. He's already his favorite and all that. Now little Joseph is blabbing all this stuff to him. They just got on his nerves. And so finally they decide they've got to get rid of this mess. And so they throw him in a pit to leave him to die. But then they see an opportunity to make a few bucks. So they sell him into slavery. You remember the story. That slavery leads him to the home of Potiphar. And the amazing thing is, is Joseph doesn't seem bitter. He doesn't seem hardened. In fact, he finds favor in Potiphar's eye. Potiphar really likes him. The only problem is he also finds favor in Potiphar's wife's eye. She really likes him. And because Joseph refuses to sleep with her. Now, I'm not being vulgar. It's the word of God. Just read it. Because he refuses to sleep with her, we watch that he's thrown into prison where he meets the baker and the candlestick maker. No, no, no the cupbearer i mean i always wanted to say that and i thought you all could take it i probably never say that again but anyhow you know and these guys have dreams and david and joseph interprets them for them one of them turns out all right the other one loses his head i mean it's the way the story goes time passes and finally we watch that joseph is standing at pharaoh's side and because he finds favor in pharaoh's eyes he becomes Pharaoh's, as Andrew Lloyd Webber would say, right-hand man. I I mean, here he is. And the amazing thing is, from the time he was thrown into the pit to where he stood at Pharaoh's side, someone help me out on this. I think it was 13 years, right? Just nod your head, preacher. You'll make me feel like I'm right whether we are or not. I'm pretty sure it was 13 years. It was at least seven, but I think it was 13. 13 years, even if it was only seven, that's a long period of time. And what the Word of God says is that Joseph remained true. But more importantly, it said that God was with Joseph in the pit. God was with Joseph in the palace. God was with Joseph in the prison. And God was pleased. With Joseph don't you want to be the kind of man or woman that no matter what you're going through God is pleased with the way you act the way you respond well now we see famine has hit hard Joseph has prepared and now we watch his brothers groveling before him they come and they kneel before him not realizing who he is now you do know Joseph knows who they are and, and I'm just going to say this I'm throwing this out there I don't think that I would have been as understanding or compassionate as Joseph was. Because as I said, I do have an older brother. And when I would see my brothers groveling before me, I would remember those 13 years of misery that I had gone through that all resulted from them throwing me in that pit and then selling me. I think I'd have probably lowered the hammer on him more than Joseph did. I think I would have made it more than just a little bit uncomfortable. I mean, I would have paid them back. And before you judge me, it's scriptural. Because remember what scripture says. Scripture says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. It's all in how you emphasize the statement. Well, anyhow. But Joseph, what does he do? He stands before him. And I love this line. He says, you all meant this for evil, but God used it for good. Boy, can we just stop for a moment and testify all the things that we look back that we have gone through. Some of us have lived longer than others, but we didn't understand what was going on through the time. And now we can look back and we see everything that happened, even though he didn't cause it. Don't blame everything on him. He used it all for our good and more importantly for his glory. And he says, you meant this for evil, but God used it for good. And so this is how the children of Israel ended up in Egypt land. It was under favorable times, but you know times change. There was a time in my life, Darla reminded me of this with a picture that I had hair on my head. And that picture had highlighted a hairspray head. And so that's probably why all my hair fell out, because I clogged everything up. You don't care, but anyhow. Things change. In Exodus chapter 1, verses 8 through ele- eight through 11 tells us this, that there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. <clears throat> and he said to his people, Look, the people of the children of Israel are more than mightier than we, Come, let us deal shrewdly with them lest they multiply and it happen in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us and to so go up out of the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh supply cities that they would never inhabit of Pithom and Ramses. So what we see as time passes, the children of Israel who were once welcome in Egypt land are now enslaved out of fear. And eventually, because of that position, because of that enslavement, they are begun to begin to look down upon by the Egyptians. They're despised. They're looked upon with disgust. This leads to years of servitude, years of slavery, where they are treated as inferior. And you know if you are treated a particular way long enough, if you are told something over and over and over again, it doesn't matter if it's true or not, eventually you begin to believe what you're being told. If you are treated uh, some uh, a particular way twenty four hours a day seven days a week for a particular you're going to begin to believe you deserve that treatment. If you are told something over and over, you're going to begin to believe what our media are, are masters at this. You do realize that I, I'll just illustrate it real simply. How many of you have children, mom and dad? If you tell your children enough, as they're growing, that they're stupid that they can't do anything right, that they're worthless. You know what they begin to believe as they grow up? That they're stupid, that they can't do anything right, that they're worthless. I meet them all the time. Husband, wife, you tell your spouse that they're unlovable, that they don't deserve anybody's love. Then eventually they begin to believe that they're unlovable, that they're not deserving of anybody's love. Words are powerful. Treatment matters. And so I can't help but think, even though it wasn't true, that they may have even begun to view themselves as something less. And all the while, don't forget that they are crying out to their God. A God that they had heard the stories of. They had probably rehearsed how God had delivered them from the the, the the hand of the famine to Egypt land. How he had brought deliverance through Joseph, one of their own. And he had heard how God had moved and they had been crying out for deliverance. But it seemed now that even their God had turned their head, had turned his ear. He did not care. He had left them alone to suffer in silence. Left them alone to die. They were truly... In a miserable place. But aren't you thankful? I think I said it on Sunday morning that we can be sure when we're not sure whether God cares or is working, that He is working and He does care. The Word of God has meant more and more to me where I read that my God, the one watching over Israel, slumbers not nor sleeps. I am thankful that he hears every prayer (coughs) that goes up. He hears every cry. And even when they did not know what God was doing, I can show you, God was at work. Because in the midst of all the darkness, the story of Moses begins to unfold. You remember the story of Moses, right? The Pharaoh... Is becoming insecure once again. He looks around and he sees the children of Israel. They're, they're becoming numerous. And so out of his insecurity, we watch him as he makes a decree. He demands that every Hebrew child, male child up to a particular age, is, needs to be drowned in the river. That, that it's just cruel, but that's what he is going to do. He's going to get rid of them. They're going to be drowned in the Nile. Moses was of that age, but you've seen the movie, and so you know that God spares his life. He's put into that little ark, that little boat, sent down the river, gets caught up in the cattails, and there's Pharaoh's daughter. You've seen the movie, right? Well, anyhow, he he is spared by God's hand. He is going to be raised by his own family in Pharaoh's court as Pharaoh's daughter's son. I, I mean, it's really incredible. For 40 years... He becomes a prince of Egypt. That's what Disney or Pixar, whoever it was, called it. So that's what I'm going to call it too. He was a prince of Egypt. It's amazing. For 40 years, he is trained in the art of war. He is skilled by by the the most brilliant generals, leaders, and all that for 40 years. But one day, he sees as an Egyptian is beating a Hebrew. He knows who he is. His Hebrew blood begins to boil. And we watch him as he takes matters into his own hands and he kills that Egyptian. And because of that act of rage, he's forced to flee Egypt land. He has to flee Egypt's court because now he's a wanted man. He's a murderer. And we find him out in the wilderness, out in the desert of Midian. Oh, how far he has fallen. He was once a prince of Egypt, but now he's a shepherd of the flock. And for the next 40 years, he's going to spend his days with the flock. For the next 40 years, as the days go by, he's going to spend his nights with the flock. He's going to eat around the flock. He's going to sleep around the flock. He's going to talk to the flock. He probably smells like the flock until one day he's out there and he ends up on Mount Oreb, the mountain of God. And when you end up on the mountain of God, honey, your life is going to change. He's up there and he looks over and he sees the bush that's burning, but it's not really burning. It's confusing. It's on fire, but it's not being consumed. And you know the story. I don't have to labor it. This is how God calls Moses to go back to Egypt land and to stand before Pharaoh and to demand to set his people free. But Moses doesn't want to go. We don't have time to get into it all. We, we, we know the arguments and eventually out of assurances from God, I will be with you. I've gone before. I will always be with you. Finally, we watches Moses is standing there in Pharaoh's court and he points his bony finger in Pharaoh's face and he demands, let my people go. But you've seen the cartoon. So you know that Pharaoh's heart has been hardened. It's not going to be easy. And so now we see as the plagues begin to unfold. Do you remember how many plagues there were? Ten. Ten plagues. Began by the water being turned to blood. Then it moves into the plague of the frogs. And I've never really thought of the plague of the frogs until this past summer. I, I have a friend. I know that's surprising. Uh, but um, I do I have a friend. Her name is Susie Schellenberger. We've written a couple of books together, and um, we've worked together a few times. Uh, we do a number of camps uh, together, and she was preaching this sermon that was entitled One More Night with the Frogs, and it, it, it's all from that plague of the frogs scene, and, and, and Susie's a better speaker than me. She's more entertaining. She puts all these video things up, um, and she drives the sound and media people crazy, be thankful. But anyhow, I mean, all this kind of stuff going on. And all these pictures of frogs while she was speaking was all around. And I'd never thought about that. Uh, You know, but if we were in that plague of frogs, that would mean if we were here at church, frogs would be all over the place, all over the floor. You go into the bathroom, there'd be frogs everywhere. I mean, just jumping across your feet. You sit back in your lazy voice. Some of you blame a frog. You know, sit back in your lazy boy, and then it begins to, all that kind of thing. Uh, well, well, here's the thing I can't imagine what that would have been like. Can you imagine to have all those frogs that I wasn't there, but I was toad. It was awful. All that for nothing. Moves to the lice and the gnats, the flies, the livestock, boils the hail, the locusts, darkness covers the land, and finally, we watch the, the plague of the firstborn. Um, And you know how dreadful this is. This is the night that any firstborn child of any family that's not found under the blood of the Lamb will lose their life. And Pharaoh wasn't exempt from that. He loses his eldest son. And it's the straw that finally breaks the camel's back and we hear him from the palace as he demands, get out of here. Go! And it brings us to our text. But what's so amazing about it is after all that, those hundreds of years, everything that has gone on, God doesn't take them on the shortest road to the promise. That bothers me because it seems like He chooses the long road to get them to where they're going. And I don't know how you deal with scripture. I don't know how your mind works, but but I struggle with things. I'm analytical, and so I just talk to God. I live alone. I drive alone, so people think I'm nuts, or at least they think I'm talking on the phone. Now that there's wireless things, all that. But really, I'm just nuts. But you you know, I I just when I saw all that was going on, I'm just going to tell you honestly what I said, and don't be offended by this. God wasn't offended, so you have no right to be. I said, God, are you kidding me? Seriously? This is the plan? After all those years when it seemed like you didn't care? After all that time when it seemed like they were struggling alone? God, this is the plan? This is what I said, I said, don't you think they've been through enough? And I argued with him for a while. But I'm glad that, um, I'm going to throw King James' word at you. I'm glad that we have a God who is long-suffering. Aren't you thankful for that? Because I've made him suffer long, I'm sure, putting up with me. He, he listened to it for a while, and then I began to realize, he began to remind me. That he did know where they had been. And that's exactly the reason why he took them on the long road to the promise. See, it's amazing to think all those years as slaves where they felt like that they had been left alone. All those years when it seemed as though he did not care. He knew every act that had been done to them. Every cry that had gone out. Every life that had been snuffed or stolen away. He saw it. And he knew how all of this had weakened them. Weakened their perspective. Weakened their self-confidence. And because he knew what they had been through, he took them on the long road. But not only because he knew what they had been through, but he also knew what they would face. Did you catch it when we read the the text? It said that there was a shorter way. The only problem was it led through the land of the Philistines. And I've already said it. I repeat myself. I'm a preacher. It's what we do. That the Philistines are always a problem for God's people. It seems like they're always struggling. And, And you know that the Philistines are a warrior people, David and Goliath. Samson and Delilah, you, you know that they're not pushovers. And now, when they would see that the people of God, the children of Israel, coming their way, because they'd have to go right through the Philistines' land, the, the land of the people of the Philistines, God knew that, that they would not just kind of part and let them pass. They wouldn't be very hospitable. They wouldn't welcome them. They would see it as a threat. Remember, I said it yesterday morning, or maybe it was last night. I'm losing count. But anyway, that they were believing for a promised land of their own. And so when they saw the Israelites coming, it would be a threat. And they would take up arms, and they would fight those people. And God knew that if the Israelites, they are slaves. They're not an army. They have been beaten down physically. They've been kept down mentally. And he knew that if they were to face battle this soon out of the gate, that their temptation, their response would be to turn around and go right back to Egypt to be slaves again. Now that doesn't make a bit of sense to me. I know it's because I was raised American. I would think that you would rather fight for your freedom than to die anyone's slave. But anyhow, that's and we have an example Exodus chapter 14, you remember the scene with the Red Sea before them. The mountain ranges on the side, and verse 10 tells us that Pharaoh is drawing near. The children of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. So they were very afraid, afraid, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. Then they said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you so dealt with us to bring us up out of Egypt? Listen to this. Is this not the word we told you in Egypt saying, leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. Their natural response would be to turn around and run right back into the chains that they had been set free from. And there's another example where the children of Israel, do you remember it? They're longing for Egypt land because it's a land of onions and garlic. Isn't that gross? How many of you ever been to Elkins, West Virginia? You've been over there. Well, Elkins is a beautiful place. It really is. And and in Elkins, West Virginia, I go there every three or four years. Um, The pastor, they have a great church there. The pastor's name is Terry Burgess. And he'll have me in every three or four years. That's all they can take of me. But uh, I always hear uh, about the ramp festival. Do you all know what ramps are? He's, he's, his mouth is watering down here. But, but ramps are those wild onions that just grow up. You cut the lawn and you smell I mean, it's gross. And I'd always heard about the ramp festival. I'd never been there during the ramp festival until this last spring. About a year or so, a year ago. I I don't remember exactly when it was, but it was last spring. And Pastor Terry scheduled revival at the tail end of the Rep Festival. I think he did that on purpose. I really do. Uh, Because he knows I don't really appreciate the smell of onions. I love the taste, but I think you have to brush your teeth after you eat them. But anyhow, you, you know, as you are coming down the mountain into Elkins, this is no joke. Lingering on the air, you can smell those ramps. It doesn't matter what building you go into, if it's a, a retail shop, if it's a store, if it's a restaurant, if it's your hotel, you smell those onions. You go to church and everybody stinks like onions. It just comes out your pores. I, I tell you what, I, I mean, it is the they sell ramp bread. Who wants to eat ramp bread? But anyhow, and, and so think about that onion and they're talking about putting garlic on top of it. Folks I'm here to tell you that smells worse than a super (laughs) eight. I stay in too many hotels. Because he knew what they would face he took them on the long road to the promise not only because he knew where they had been and what they would face, but this one is beautiful to me. He took them on the long road because he was preparing them for what was to come. I would suggest that he used that time as a time of preparation. And and, and understand this, this is why it's so beautiful to me. I don't know what this will do for some of you, but it's beautiful. Remember, it wasn't his plan that they wander that long. The reason why they wandered that long was because they were disobedient. And even in their disobedience, God was at work in their lives. That's beautiful. You want to see a God that loves you, even in your disobedience. Now, I'm not encouraging you to be disobedient. Some of you need to stop that mess. You know it's true. I mean, you're doing something, you know God doesn't want you to do it. Don't don't take advantage of his grace. But even in this time, he was using it to form them into the people of God. He was developing them into a nation. They were learning who their God was, and he was maturing their character within them. It was a time of preparation for their own good. Now, if you have your Bible, here's where I want you to see this passage of Scripture. I'm going to give you a moment to grab your Bible, because if you haven't needed this, you will need it. Exodus chapter 23, verses 27 through 30. And I want to say this before we ever read this passage, that I realize it's a different context. Because they have entered into the land. God is going to begin to give them what he has promised. So I understand the context is different, but the principle still remains. Listen to what it says in verses 27 through 30. God speaks, I'll send my fear before you. I'll cause confusion among all the people to whom you come and will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I'll send the hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivite, the Canaanite, and the Hittite from before you, verse 29. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. Little by little... I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and you inherit the land. Do you get the picture of what God is saying? After all these years, now they're receiving the promise. They're there. And God is saying, I'm going to finish what I have started, but I'm not going to do it in one year. Aren't you thankful that we have a God that can do things instantaneously? Aren't you thankful for that? I I believe I have seen it. I, I have watched as people who have struggled with addiction, who have laid packs of cigarettes on an altar, and I'm just picking that because I've actually seen it, laid packs of cigarettes on the altar and got up and walked away and can testify that they never had a craving for another cigarette. He can do it that way. But then I've also seen people who have tried. I was in a revival one time and a drunk man staggered in during the middle of the service. He came down drunk, laid his beer cans out. I mean, he just kept pulling them out of his coat, laid them out there, knelt down and prayed. And I promise you, you can think I'm being whatever, but he stood up sober. And I watched as people of that church, he stunk, he was dirty. Each night, cleaned him up, brought him clothes. And to this day, he can testify as to what God has done. And yet, just a week or so ago, I had a friend that had to spend a stint in rehab because they had been praying and praying and praying and praying. They're from a godly family that God would deliver them, and yet somehow they could never get it. God doesn't always do things instantaneously. He can, there is no doubt. And God could have given them the land all at once. But he said, if I were to do that, you couldn't handle it. If I were to give this all to you, I'm not going to do it all in one year. Because if I did, the land would be too much. It would become desolate. And then you'd find yourself against another foe. The beasts of the field would overtake you. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to give it to you little by little. We don't like that, do we? Until you have increased and inherit the land. See, here's the thing that I'm going to say to you, and I'm probably going to just mess up the sermon, but I'm just going to say this. I believe the kind of people that come to church on Wednesday night are good not, are good people. I do, and there are probably people in here of prayer. There are some of you in here that God has given you a promise, and you have been holding on to that promise, and you have been praying about that promise. I know it happens in ministry. I, I, I do. And, and yet somehow when we... Pray about those things every now and then. Maybe it's a family member that you're just claiming in the name of Jesus that you can. Not if they come, but when they come. I mean, you're just claiming that, and yet it just seems every now and then you get a little flicker of hope. But then it seems farther and farther away. I'm going to encourage you to keep praying. Don't give up, because the reason why, especially in ministry, preachers. The reason why, singers, that I don't believe sometimes we get the platform that we think we need, and this applies to everybody else in here too, but I'm going to talk to my own kind for a minute. The reason why we don't get the opportunity to stand here or to preach here or to sing there is because maybe if we got what we asked for, it would destroy us. And God cares about us too much. So little by little, that's good preaching whether you want to receive it or not. Because I'm going to say to you, Don't give up hope. Hold on to the promise. We are sailing. If nothing else, we have the promise. We are sailing to Zion. Hold on. It was a time of preparation for their own good. And through it all, they would learn that he was always with them, had always been, and would always be okay. I've preached all this time to come here. Based upon this story that we've shared together. And the reason why I've shared it all is because I've been amazed lately with the Old Testament. I'm a man of pattern. I'm obsessive compulsive. And so when I get in a book, I stay there and I've I, I love the gospel according to Mark. I, I preach there a lot. I spend a lot of time there. But every now and then God will lead me down a different path. And I've been in the Old Testament lately. And if you come to me and say, Well, the Old Testament isn't really relevant, I'd say God. Get out of my face. No, I wouldn't say it like that. (laughs) I'd think that, but then I'd say to you, well, why not? Jesus is on every page. It's all one book. The Old Testament is a book about Jesus, and the scarlet thread runs throughout the whole thing. And the amazing thing about these stories in the Old Testament, the reason they're so preachable, they're so applicable, is because it's our story. I mean, when I look at the story of the children of Egypt, uh, of children of Israel coming out of Egypt land and the ex, I've been all over that thing. I have been every character. I, I mean, I've even been a slave, and there were times I was probably even the slave master. But but I've been enslaved to sin. By the way, you have been too. Not a, Jesus set me free. And yet sometimes we just want to keep going back. We don't have to do, I've been all over. So I want to say to you, this is what the story shows us. This is what life bears out. This, I guess I could say, this is the proposition I want to offer you. Looking at the story, I am reminded that the God who redeems and delivers his people. And by the way, let me just remind you, if you are Christian, want to testify, raise your hand. Been saved, born again, you have been bought with a price. You have been redeemed by his blood. And if he has redeemed you, you have been delivered out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. You can't dwell in both, those are the only two choices. He has brought you out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. So, this is our story. The God who redeems and delivers his people, hear it, will also guide and protect them. Even in moments of diso- hear it. The God who redeems and delivers his people will also guide And protect them. In other words, you can trust him. See, I really think most of the issues we deal with in our Christian life is we have trust problems. Because people have done us wrong. I've been done wrong. You've been done wrong. Got trust issues. But I'm telling you tonight that he'll never do you right. He'll never do you wrong. He'll always do you right. I'm thinking about these songs going on in my mind. I can't do two things at once. Can't chew gum and walk. But anyhow, he'll never let you down. You can trust him. I say that because he knows where you've been. That's an amazing thought. He knows where you have been. Maybe it's not amazing to you, but to me, there are things in my life that have happened, that I've never told anybody, things I've questioned and wondered why, that I haven't been able to express, things that people have done to me that I didn't understand, didn't think anybody knew about, but now I realize he did the whole time. And I'm not ashamed to say that because you've been there too part of the human journey. We've all had those times. And He knows how we have been affected. He knows how we feel so you can trust Him because the God who redeems and delivers you will also guide and protect. He knows where you've been. But here's the really exciting part that I'm learning. I'd like to tell you that I've learned it. But I can't because I'm not going to lie to you. Not only does he know where we've been, but he knows what we're going to face. The reason why I say I'm learning it is because my obsessive compulsive, I was diagnosed as a young boy, causes me to be analytical. I'm not making excuses. It's just part of the condition. I think about things that get in my head, And because it's empty, otherwise, it gets trapped. And I lay in my head at night. I lay in my head and I do lay in my head at night in my bed. And things rattle around in my mind. I can't get rid of them. And because of that, I'm going to say it. It's not going to sound holy, and I'm embarrassed to say it in front of you all. But I'm a worrier. I do. I'd like to say that I just get concerned. But no, folks, I get worried. I I think about my family. I love my family. You know, my dad passed when he was 46. My mom is getting older. And when she's gone, I'm alone. That's what it's going to be. I mean, I'm going to be the guy in the nursing home that no one comes to visit, that every now and then someone will roll me over, treat my bed sore, and spray me off. I mean, I'm going to be that guy. Or they'll find me in my underwear bloated because I died days before in my hotel room and now I'm seeping all. They'll have to get a new mattress because I'm going to ruin it. (laughs) You got more than you ever imagined by coming here. I worry about my family. It's not fun to watch your parents age. You know, and things begin to happen, and I'm I'm on the road. I'm going to be home one day this month. So if something's going on, I'm trying to do some stuff at her house and all that, and I manage it all from the phone. And she's the kind of lady that doesn't want somebody up on a ladder because she doesn't want them falling. So I have to say, well, just do what you can do without getting up on the ladder. She's a little hillbilly lady from southeast Kentucky. You're not going to tell her no. She'll pull her down off that ladder. <laughs> I worry. I want to fix things. I want to fix some of you. I really do. I don't think you realize what you've got. And I want to reach out and just shake you a little bit and wake you up. I'm learning. See, this is the thing that's amazing to me. I'm I'm wrapping up. Can I give you one more example just to bring this home? I, I just got a new vehicle. Up to this point, I, I've been driving a uh, Toyota 4Runner. I love it. But it just turned over 307,000 miles. And I don't think it had another 307,000 miles in it, especially when I started to make my way home from Logansport, Indiana. If you don't know where there, that is, you don't have any need to. <laughs> I got as far as Kokomo and baby I didn't want to go <laughs> because I had to stop there and leave my car at the dealership Thursday. I stayed in Kokomo Thursday night. Friday came along. I was waiting for my car to get fixed. When they try to fix one thing, something else would go wrong. And it's 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 three hundred and seven thousand miles. I mean it's been a wonderful car, but when things start happening, now they're gonna happen and so Finally, closing time Friday was coming near because they roll up the streets in Kokomo at a certain hour. But it was coming near, and and uh, I had to be in Georgia. They're expecting me down outside of Dublin, Georgia. I I had to be down there. So I travel. You don't see it with a sound system and product and all that. That's why I was in the Forerunner. I mean, it was overflowing. No one could ride with me. I'd outgrown it, and so they throw me in a Corolla. I don't fit in a Corolla. It's a wonderful car. I mean, you, it is just—they're not great for packing a bunch of stuff in and traveling. If you want economy and gas and stuff, it's a wonderful vehicle. I'm not knocking it. So I drove down there, stayed until Thursday morning. Had to drive back home to Cincinnati, where I caught—I slept in my own bed that night because I had to get up Friday and drive back to Kokomo to pick up a car. And. I didn't know how I was going to get another one. I'm not trying to give you a sob story. I'm really not. I can't stand it when people pour mouth, so please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But it's not easy as an evangelist. Try to tell a banker when they say, Well, how much do you make each week? How much do you make a month? I don't know. Am I telling the truth, Mickey? It's not easy to get someone to understand how things work, but I can report to you while I was in Georgia, I went through the easiest process. God gave me, now I'm paying for it, but God gave me a new Suburban, and so now I have room for my sound equipment, for my product, and Mickey, I'll even take you if you want to go. The thing is, all that worry was for nothing. Get a hold of this. We talk in time frames because we are bound by time. We live life in the present tense. We can remember the past, but we can't go back there. We can talk about the future and we can hope for the future, but none of us are promised another day. We are bound. We are limited. I am numbered. I am 46 years old. You're numbered by God created time, not for His benefit, but for our benefit. In fact, God is not bound by time meaning that God is timeless. That's why we say things like this. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so, when I remember how He, through His Spirit, saw me through yesterday, and if there's anybody in this room that does not hear me on this, Because I wasn't complaining. If there is anybody in this room who does not have any right to complain, it's me. Because God has always more than met my need. God has been better to me than I ever could possibly deserve. You know, when I remember what he did for me yesterday, I can't go back there. But he was there, and he's not bound by that. He's here with me today. The same God that did that yesterday is here today. I can trust him with what I'm dealing with right now in this moment. I can sense him right now no matter what's going on. And since he is not bound by time, I can't get to tomorrow. I can worry about everything that's going to happen. I can worry about what's happening with my mom. I can think about financial needs. I can think about this, but I can't do a thing about it. But if my God... God is not bound by time if he is the same yesterday today and forever when he was with me yesterday and I know that he's with me now then I can rest assured knowing that he is already in my tomorrow he is already working all things out for my good in his glory that group of people who is out to get you who it just seems like is always laying in wait he's already dealt with them on the job that financial need that you don't know how it's going to come through. You don't know how you're going to make it. He's already written the check brother. It's going to work out that physical need that the doctor says there's nothing more that you can do. Well the great physician is in control of all and he is all we need. So if he is already in my tomorrow here's the deal. I'm going to sleep tonight. I am learning that he knows what I am going to face. And because he knows what I'm going to face, by the way, he knows what you're going to face. You can trust him. And I would dare say that he's preparing you for what is to come. Hear it even in your moments of disobedience. I hope you're not but he'll even use those things. So while we pray, while we long, while we believe, he's forming, developing faith, teaching us, maturing us into the people of God, preparing us for what he has for us. And by the way, he never said it'd be easy, but he did say it'd be good. So where he leads me, I'll follow. Will it be easy? No. I won't lie to you. How can we do it? Well, I kind of gave Blandly a bum rap because the very last verse, Blandly answers that question for us. He says, He, God, will give me grace and glory He'll go with me. So as I go with him, he'll go with me, with me all the way. So no matter where you are on this journey, wherever you find yourself in that story, even if you feel as though you are on the long road to the promise, You're on the long road home. I can promise you this. When he is leading, you can be sure that it's going to be the right way. I've told you the truth. Be encouraged. Jesus, tonight, help us. Help us to hear what you're speaking to us. I said it on Sunday morning. I believe that you've orchestrated this time. I look around and I see people. I don't know where they're living. I don't know what's going on in their life. But you do. And you have brought them here for this purpose. So they could receive exactly what they need in you. Maybe, Lord, the thing that we need more than anything else is just to begin to ask for more of your presence in our lives because we realize that it's in your presence that all our needs are met. So I pray for my brother, my sister who is discouraged. Maybe they're trying to figure out what else they're fit to do. Would you encourage them tonight? Help them to know your presence. For the one who's feeling beaten down by life circumstance, no matter what they do, they can't get their head above, above water and they feel as though they're just going to drown, would you help them sense your hand reaching to them and let them know that you are there I don't really know how to pray, Jesus, but I believe that you want to renew hope. You want to do a work, so please help us. We can't even get this right sometimes. Help none of us to leave this place without receiving what you have. With your heads bowed, I'm going to invite you all over the sanctuary, please, if you're able to stand to your feet. You've been very patient with me tonight. I promise not to keep you this long every night. But I feel like I shared with you what God wanted me to share, and I think we needed it. I needed it. You needed it. So could I just say to you, if we have a God that's so good to provide what we need, why would any of us reject it? There are altars here. And by all means, there's nothing magical about the altar, but what a wonderful place to come and meet with Him. To make a statement that you do trust Him. Sometimes we have to do those bold things. I think it's good for us we've gotten away from it. Whatever the Lord may be speaking to you, you respond to him. And at the appropriate time, we'll have a closing prayer. Pastor will lead us in a closing prayer at the appropriate time. Someone will. What's important is that you do what you need to do.